there's lots of things that you can look back on and say, if I had only done it this way, but that information was unknowable at the time, you can have a good decision-making process, but still a bad outcome. And you can also have the inverse and whatever outcome you get, don't let it influence your decision-making process. From $50 million in circulation annually in venture capital to about $500 million, this 10x growth in a short amount of time in Oklahoma caught my attention. So when Nathaniel Harding of Cortado Ventures invited me out to Oklahoma City, yes, the middle of America, for the Mid-Continent VC Summit earlier this year, my answer was yes. Today's conversation is with a leader unlike any other I've had on the show, a former Air Force captain stationed at the U.S. NATO headquarters in Afghanistan. Nathaniel transition from military service to become a successful oil entrepreneur, leading a venture that ultimately exited for a staggering $120 million. But what truly sets Nathaniel apart is his unwavering commitment to positive change. In 2018, his company played a pivotal role in discovering one of the largest new natural gas resources in the United States, and today he serves as managing partner at Cortado Ventures, which has just announced its oversubscribed close of fund to investing in early-stage startups in the mid-continent and region of America. You don't want to miss this. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves. I'm Sergeant Ann Spellings, and on the show, I travel across the globe in search of the unexpected leader. Every week, it is my job to deconstruct the billion dollar moves of unicorn founders and funders, many of them underestimated long before they became iconic. Many of them, unexpected leaders just like you. This show is about unfiltered conversations on success, failure, fear, and courage in the pursuit of the next big thing in tech and venture. Now, before we hop in here, I have a quick favor to ask you. About 80% of the listeners of this podcast have yet to hit the follow button, and it would really help me out if you would smash that follow button wherever you're tuning in from. The bigger the show gets, the bigger the guests get, and the more stories we can amplify across the global venture ecosystem so that we can all keep making billion-dollar moves together. Now, let's get started. Nathaniel, I'm so excited to be here in Oklahoma City, your hometown. Welcome. I'm so Wonderful excited. We had you. we had such a great time yesterday at the Mid Continent uh, VC conference, the first of its kind. The first of many. I think it went great. So thanks to people like you for making it special. I mean, let's get started here with why did you decide to do this? Why now? Has this ever been done before in this forum in, in Oklahoma the, City? The, the Mid Continent Venture Capital Summit. It was something that really was the outcropping of ideas that we've been working on for a while, but also taking inspiration from other markets where venture capital um, is, well, there's more of it. And whereas in our part of the country, um, it's a newer asset class, certainly growing. We think it's grown about tenfold really in the past few years. Really? And the idea was to shine a spotlight and to give the market a name. And interestingly, the name Mid-Continent is actually borrowing from oil and gas. So like in this part of the country, we know exactly what Mid-Continent means. Outside of this part of the country, they don't. And so uh, it's our way of saying there's now a new way to think about what is happening in the Mid-Continent, that venture capital ha has arrived. It's a flag for entrepreneurs and innovators and investors to come and, and be part of that. So what is the Mid-Continent? Like, I mean, as you said, sure. uh, those in oil and gas know all <laughs> about it. But for me, I even had to ask Mike, you know, okay, which are mm -hmm. the states? What do we consider? Is there a reason why you've chosen these six states to be representative of the market that you're in? Yeah, it's Oklahoma and the states that touch it. So so that includes you know, Texas, Arkansas, Kansas, New Mexico. So these are all areas where, and even Missouri. So these are all areas that we see a lot of activity 
across certain sectors like energy and logistics because there's a lot of economic corridors that share similarities. So you think of, for instance, in energy, Oklahoma and North Texas. You think of aerospace, you know, Tinker Air Force Base, one of the largest bases in the world, up to Colorado Springs, you know, logistics, um, Tulsa to Bentonville. So a lot of these sectors that where we have similarities between you know, across the mid-continent. We're really putting it all together and saying this is an area that is overlooked by Coastal VC. It's an area that we know well because we've spent our careers here and built companies here. And an area that there's now more innovation happening than ever. A lot of it has to do with digitizing of real assets, AI, meeting legacy industries. Things that really weren't possible or weren't happening before are now happening. And so that's why you see this third wave of venture capital coming into what we know affectionately and, and have built our careers in the mid-continent. Yeah, so very exciting. I mean, as I was preparing for it, I myself was not aware that 75% of all venture capital actually goes to three main states. And mm -hmm. 20, you know, that is California, Massachusetts, and New York. Mm -hmm. That's right, yeah. So the three yeah. states getting 75% of venture capital, which means the rest of the country is competing for that 25%. Now you're mm -hmm. talking a little bit about the shift of innovation driving the change that you're seeing with the level of entrepreneurship is the capital following. Are we going to see a change in the percentage split of venture capital here? I've seen some data actually recently that was talking about the overall venture capital dollars have, have shrunk compared to last year. Last year was yeah. a record year. Um, year before that was a record year. But that shrinkage has actually been in those areas you just described. It's actually been growth still in places like the mid-continent and Midwest, places outside of the coast. And, and so it's actually, I think, even more more telling that when overall the dollars are shrinking and in the places where it's been dominant have been shrinking, it's actually been growing here. Okay. So a lot to dig into there, mm -hmm. but first thing, because we're fresh off the big conference that you put together yesterday, mm -hmm. what was your key takeaway before we go deep into your own story and what brought you here? I think people, including myself, were blown away. That was mm -hmm. actually a, a phrase that, that we heard or, or different versions of it. We had 250 people in a in a room that had capacity for 200, but the demand was just so, so high. And we had an amazing mix of, you know, roughly a third of the audience were check writers, investors of different kinds. A third of the audience were innovators at different stages, all, all early stage and high tech. Um, the other third being ecosystem builders, you know, sponsors, our team. And the, the quality of speakers, the fact that we had people from 15 states, 33 cities, four countries, that were all, you know, in fact, I think 10 or 12 people in the room had never been to Oklahoma before. Including myself. <laughs> That's right. And so I love seeing that because you have people that have been here forever and building, but also people that maybe are in the region that are investing here and others that maybe are outside of the region that, that are seeing what's happening or want to learn more. Yeah. And that's exactly the point of it. So just the, the caliber of speakers and just the, really the, the, the production quality showing that this is a real deal and people should pay attention to it. So this is serious. This it's is serious. a real deal. Yeah. And Nathaniel Harding is the real deal. Let's learn more about him. So let's go way back in true Bill and Dollar Moves fashion. You studied Russian and mechanical engineering, a very interesting mix. What was in your mind as a young boy here? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So I always wanted to learn another language. And at the time, I had kind of two different ideas. I was, at the time, there's a lot of oil and gas development happening in Russia. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, that might be really, you know, a strategic move to learn that. I also, where I went to high school, I went to a, a prep school in New Hampshire. They happened to have an amazing Russian program. So I was able to test out of two years of Russian when I went to college. And oil and gas was really booming in Russia. I also had an interest in you know, future opportunities at the State Department, and Russia is a strategic language. So I was kind of hedging my bets, but also like really doing kind of a bucket list thing of learning another language. 
I've now forgotten a lot of what I've learned. <laughs> I, I, my, my, my teachers would be appalled. But at that kind of peak in college, I got a chance to go to Russia several times and even volunteered at an orphanage. And I, I was the only volunteer that spoke Russian, so I was, ended up being a translator as well. So those experiences were, were amazing, very thankful. The mechanical engineering was, um, you know, I wanted to work in technical fields, including in energy. And mechan you know, mechanical engineering is very diverse. You have a lot of opportunities out of that. So that was kind of a strategic selection as well. The number one thing I got out of engineering is problem solving. People ask me like, well, do I still do free body diagrams and do fluid dynamics? No, I could maybe name some of the equations, but that's about it. But the problem solving that I built because of engineering is, is I still use today. So, but I'm curious, I mean, mechanical engineering, that makes sense, right? That was in your blood, you're mm -hmm. in a family, you're, you're the oil man uh, in many ways, the next generation, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But this intent to be an international citizen, to serve, and you later on went to serve as a captain, where did all this sense of patriotism, I suppose, come from? Yeah, um, I, I, you're, you're right. I've, I've had a lot of experience that's taken me abroad, both in the kind of professional capacity, but outside of that as well. It's always just, I've always admired people who serve their country and the, the level of training that you get to become an officer and that leadership, but the ability to, I guess, to, to work and serve my country was always something that I really valued and envision myself as a young person. That's what I want to do. I want to be somebody who steps up, signs up, serve my country in a war zone. That's actually went to Afghanistan in 2012. You know, very proud that I did that. The amount of training that, that you get to become, to go in the military at all, uh, to be an officer was huge. I'm very thankful. So we talked about this earlier. You're one of six boys in your family, mm -hmm. uh, come from a mixed family in Oklahoma City. Uh, well, actually Norman, right? Mm -hmm. With right. Uh, where the horses, so I'm thinking ranch, <laughs> cowboy hat, you and those boots and all yeah, that. Yeah, our, our neighbors were <laughs> farmers. I mean, we were surrounded That's by right. farmland, yeah. Mm -hmm. So do you think, you know, that path of wanting to serve your country was also part of, I guess, your experience in childhood and wanting mm -hmm. to stand out among your brothers? Yeah, way? with five older brothers, with six of us, it was, uh, you definitely have to do things to stand out. You have to eat quickly. Um, and my, my brothers were kind of a mixed family. So my brothers are much older than me. So kind of seeing what they're doing and, and oftentimes looking back, mm. I realized that some of the choices I, I made were trying to just be different. Well, he played basketball, he played baseball. I needed to do something else. So I, I was the, the weirdo from Oklahoma that played ice hockey. And I loved it. Those kinds of choices. But also I think um, looking back on it now, I... You know, growing up in a, and frankly, what's kind of a rural area or a rural part of a suburb in the middle of the country, there's a lot more people that I think have that kind of very American identity, more traditional and more service oriented. Certainly, I mean, like service in the military. So I think some of those things fed into it. And, and I had you know, one of my brothers did go into the Navy. He was a doctor in the Navy. And uh, so, of course, I had to do some other branch to the Air Force. And so I think there is some of that. There's some sibling rivalry as well. Yeah, for sure. You know, who's more patriotic or who went outside the wire more. And, and so that's always yeah. a part of growing up in a big family. Yeah. So we're going to touch on this just very quickly because, of course, you and I you know, we're part of a community where we have some really high flyers in government and politics and geopolitics is top of mind. And, of course, you served in Afghanistan and we've, you know, taken a very different turn. How'd you feel about that? So I was actually in Kabul at the airport where all that was going down. So all the news footage and the things when they're talking about the Kabul airport, that's where I worked. And I was actually working when I was there in 2012 on the transition, which was a very long-term plan. Yeah. Well, 10 years later, our exit, that was not the, the original plan. 
But really the insight that I'll take away from it is that I observed in my time there and I learned from others because I actually got to work uh, with Afghan military and civilian authorities that our preconceived notion that everybody has a national identity and it's a strong one, I think that perception, that national identity and cohesion is not the same way in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, people identify more with their local communities, more with their province. When you consider that context, it's perhaps a little bit less surprising that once the U.S. left, you had people you know, taking their uniforms off and re-identifying with the local community. It sounds unusual to us because in the U.S., we're very much American first and then the state you're from, you know, second. Um, and I think it's just different in, in other cultures and specifically in Afghanistan. Yeah. And were you disappointed at the way that all turned out? Disappointed um, maybe has much to do with because we worked so hard, we did so much. I gave a lot of my time in that effort and to see it go to waste is, is just a shame, I guess. And ultimately, I think it was it was the wrong approach and and perhaps... Having some kind of presence is not unexpected. I mean, if you look at our presence uh, throughout the world, there's reasons that we have bases you know, throughout the world. So it's not unusual to even think that we would have an enduring presence there. So um, those are things that where we, you know, the disagreements uh, abound and disappointment and how it was managed. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about this, the fact that you come with a very strong sense of American identity. And I think this is very clear with a lot of Americans today. Part of that... I think, and I'd love to hear if you agree, is the blood of entrepreneurship, of business first, of innovation. Uh, and now you've taken it in a different form. But do you feel that is part of the secret sauce? Why aren't other countries as nationalistic as we mm -hmm. are in some way? Yeah, there definitely is an identity, a national identity in the U.S. that embraces and loves entrepreneurship, right? I mean, that's a huge part of, of who we are. And I'll even take it a step further. In Oklahoma, some people know that... In 1889, there was a land run. So overnight, we went from a population of, you know, essentially zero to 10,000 and people staking, you know, staking their home in Oklahoma City and the region. So these people were risk takers. They were going out and doing a new thing. And so that's still in our blood in Oklahoma. But even just, I think the national identity across the, you know, across America still very much identifies and celebrates the entrepreneur. And, mm. and so I think that's reflected in the number of small businesses in the U.S., you know, per capita or however you want to look at it. The fact that venture capital is certainly, at least in its current form, was, was born in the U.S. and it's still the strongest here. I think those are all outcroppings of that identity. Yeah. And you began building this identity mm -hmm. as an entrepreneur mm -hmm. after your stint by going into family business. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about that chapter of your life. Yeah, and I do have an entrepreneurial family for sure. So my grandfather, my great uncle, my uncle, my dad, your brother, we've all been our own bosses at various times. And we've all like worked for our dads as well. You know, I guess, you know, learning or almost being an apprentice and then going off on our own. Yes, yeah, so the, the family business, business model. oil and gas exploration mm -hmm. and production company. And so we would lease land, we would drill wells, operate the wells for any number of years and bring in infrastructure to sell product. Um, but then we identified an opportunity to really develop a new area you know, using at the time new technologies around horizontal drilling. And uh, we developed our acreage, again, growing more in those three years than we had the previous 30 years combined. And then we sold in 2013 and it was a great outcome for us and our investors and yeah. really cut my teeth on the entrepreneurial approach and using technology to, to develop a business. It sounds like you came in 
young, guns blazing, <laughs> and then took your family business to an exit, which was a great outcome. But of course, with family business, and I have many next generations on the show as well that have gone on to build their own paths. There's almost a tug and war between legacy beliefs and mm -hmm. the new generation. Was there any of that during your time? Um, yes, there were no secrets about it, but certainly difference of ideas on what, what should happen next. I was very you know, thankful to, to be able to um, to have us younger people in the company, you know, be listened to and be taken seriously and then eventually be able to take over different elements of the business. And uh, because of that, transform the company from, you know, really a company that was operated in the same way that companies had been since the 80s in that industry to really a technology first digitizing our, our, our assets and then using new technologies to develop our What property. does that mean, using new technologies? For instance, bringing in a telemetry to be able to control and view data in real time mm. uh, operations across across the asset. Eventually using 3D seismic, gain insight into what was underground, right? Really bringing new technologies to try to quantify, identify where we should drill, but then be able to have real time information on our operations across. And those are things that, that we that we brought in as part of that development. And why do you think that was necessary at that time? I guess what I'm getting to is how mm -hmm. did you find your stamp within a larger organization and that this was the path that you wanted to take the company to? Some of it was that I had worked for a large corporation in Canada that was doing these things and saw what that looks like, but then seeing that there's so many efficiencies we can gain if you brought those into a small company, really evaluating like what's kind of worth, not just technology for technology's sake, but what is actually going to enhance our productivity. And so those are some of the things that inspired and trying to push the company into that next level, but also seeing that we had a real opportunity to develop an asset to a level that was going to be substantial, it was going to require a lot of capital. Uh, we ended up deploying over $100 million you know, gross over that time. And what was unexpected in your time there? I mean, in running a family business, did you come in or you parachuted straight away to CEO? How did that whole journey work? No, it started off as just a, a staff level engineer and then started managing other engineers and then grew into a vice president of operations type role. And, and so by the time we sold, me and my partner, Kevin Dunnington, were you know really the kind of insiders leading the company on a day-to-day -day basis. And then our founders, my dad and John Shelton, were certainly you know, like board level type roles by the time we exited. And then after the exit, after we sold the company, then then we started our own company, and, and that's where we really became again bootstrapping. So it's not like starting over. You sell you sell the family business, and then you bootstrap your next business, and then we brought in private equity uh, to further develop like, right. our own company after that. So now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new Service Hub can help, with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets, so you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. Essentially, you collected all this data to also package the story about why mm -hmm. this business is a good buy, essentially, to get to that exit. Mm -hmm. And you got to that level of exit. Uh, who, who bought the family company? It was, at the time, a company called Lighthouse mm -hmm. Energy. That, those assets have now traded hands a few times. So Lighthouse um, acquired the property in 2013, private equity backing, including from Energy and Minerals Group out of Houston. And so that was, you're right, we had a, a whole 
process that took the better part of a year and didn't get what we wanted out of that. And so then it became a protracted negotiated sale. So I guess I, I point that out to say really learned a lot through that because I was the technical lead in that process, you know, working with the investment bankers, saw what that looked like, but then I got to see what it looked like to have a, a nine month negotiation that ended up with a great outcome. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so you sold the company mm -hmm. and then decided to do it all over again. Yeah, that's right. What we had was, so much fun. We wanted to do it again. And why did you sell to then do it all over again? Was mm -hmm. it because you wanted to build something from scratch to have your own thing or? Yeah, there certainly was a huge part of that. But then really being the technology first, very focused on exploration. So we talk about ENP, exploration and production, but very focused on exploration. So how can we use technology to find a new area that's undervalued and then be an early mover. And we did that and the company ended up being called Antioch Energy. That's the company with the private equity backing. And then we hired a CEO in Houston. So we serve on the board. My partner and I serve on the board for that company. And it's focused in a new area in Eastern Oklahoma and really taking everything that we refined and learned from the family business and then eventually selling it, making that the focus now of mm. the new company. So this is such an interesting journey that you've been through of exactly that, right? Deciding to sell the old and build a new, still in the similar area, still approaching the problem. A lot of the people we have on are going through similar journeys and people that tune into this, mm -hmm. they're next generation leaders. They're, they come from families where mm -hmm. perhaps there has been some wealth, but they're also finding the identity in themselves. Were there any regrets in how you did it? What did you learn? Yeah, learned tons. And, uh, you know, timing is huge in any business, especially on gas, but really in, in any business, you can have a good decision-making process, but still a bad outcome. And you can also have the inverse and whatever outcome you get, don't let it influence your decision-making process. In other words, if you, even if you have a good decision-making process, but get a bad outcome, it was still a good process. You should repeat. And so some of that influenced when you're doing something new, when you're developing a new area, you have lots of choices to make on what technologies to use, what money to spend, and what areas to develop. And so there's lots of things that you can look back on and say, if I had only done it this way, but that information was unknowable at the time. Mm. And I think that's an important thing to remind us now as investors, because we go through some of that decision-making process on how, where do you, out, you know, spend your time? Where do you spend your money? Whether I, my, my previous career as an operator or now as an investor, those I think are transferable lessons. You've taken some range in the woods <laughs> of David Epstein. That's right. To now become an investor mm. in very much a startup, right? Again, tell us a little bit about why, why Cortado? Why now? So I love what we're doing now with Cortado Ventures. And the fact then the kind of why now was we started just a few years ago. In fact, we turned three really through my journey as an entrepreneur. And then as an angel investor, seeing you know the other side of the table and that we can now support the next generation of, of entrepreneurs and founders was really just a once in a lifetime opportunity. And the fact that we're doing it here, where at the time there was very little venture capital in, in this market, but seeing that there's a huge appetite for it, like we perceived, and I think the market ended up telling us we were correct. We perceived that there's a huge appetite for organized capital investing in early stage technology companies, but doing it in our own unique way, not just because. Yeah. And so there's a lot of political will, a lot of investor interests, in, in what we're doing. And, and even when we started in 2020, we started two months into the pandemic. Actually, it ended up being even more conviction from our investors and from the business community to say like, now is the time to diversify the economy, to invest in what's next. Oil and gas has really gotten us here from the last 100 years. What's going to define the next 100 years? For so long, people have been talking about, we need to diversify our economy, we need to invest in technology. And I think it really, our story 
you know, me and my partners, Mike Marotti and David Woods, we built our careers here. We built our companies here. And our story that our investors believe in is that we're going to take what we've learned on building companies in these sectors, in this part of the country, and we're going to help the next generation do it. Nathaniel, I mean, what you said that really mm -hmm. caught me, the fact that you came to realization point that what got us here might not get mm -hmm. us into the future, right? From point A to point B. And you started in a very old school business, mm -hmm. oil and gas, energy, very, I guess, expected given where you're in, right? This is the economy that drives the GDP of mm -hmm. your state, so and so forth. That shift from oil and gas to be doing what you're doing right now in Cortado seems pretty different. How did you even, from being an operator, thinking about oil and gas, think about, hmm, let's start a venture capital mm -hmm. firm. Let's invest into these startups that may or may not succeed. Like, How did this thinking process come about? I actually have a lot of analogies to how it is similar to uh, the oil and gas business because, well, the risk profile is somewhat similar. You know, instead of wells, they're startups, but also the kind of you know, return profile that you're looking for can be very similar. And oil and gas, you call it wildcatting. And that's where you go out into a new area and you hope that something works. You think it will because of what you know. You invest in it and you may get a zero outcome or you may get a great outcome. So actually, there's a lot of similarities in the kind of wildcatter mentality that you see from oil and gas. Certainly, you know, think of kind of the more old school days, like really what's defined most of the history of the industry. And now applying that... Um, on a you know with technology companies and really saying but but also seeing that there's been a shift that we've witnessed in this part of the country where because you've now had you know the digitizing of assets you now have artificial intelligence being infused to everything and not just chat gpt but now in legacy industry we see ai in in the oil field so we've seen even in my previous career we were seeing how technology is infiltrating everything hmm. and who knows those areas better than people who operated companies there and so the shift was almost just more like the risk appetite the ability to build companies the ability to create a vision, sell a vision, build a team around it. Those are transferable skills. Right. And I guess a whole other layer to it is if I can talk the language to people that I've known for my whole career in this part of the country, people that have seen us build our companies, know us, trust us, believe that we can do it. And if I can talk their language and get them committed as well, this thing will work. And that's what happened. And so we have, we now have over a hundred investors. You know, originally most of them were from here you know, from mm -hmm. Oklahoma, from the region. We now have investors from both coasts and from all over the country. So Fun One was in the height of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I hear you raised pretty quickly. Yeah, our goal in was... six weeks or something of that sort, yeah, the we, first one. We, we got to our first, like, closed target of, of 5 million in just a matter of weeks. Our, our goal was 10 million. We ended up raising 20 million. Wow. So we ended up raising twice our goal in about half the time. Mm. And why do you think that happened so quickly? Everything was over Zoom because it was all pandemic. I think it's... So instead of us coming in from the coast, and saying, we are venture capital experts. We're going to do this for you. Trust us. Instead of that, we flipped on its head and said, we're company builders. You know us. We know these sectors. And there was just such high conviction that we were the people to do it and mm. that the time was now and that our intuition was that there was a mismatch between the number of companies starting and the amount of private capital organized to invest in it. That was our perception. That was our experience. PitchBook actually came out with data around the same time that, that proved it, that showed that our you know, many of the markets in our, in our part of the country, when you look at the amount of companies relative to the amount of dry powder, organized capital for startups, it, the, huge, the largest mismatch 
is in this part of the country. Right. And so the data proved our intuition and then everybody that's here knows it, felt it, and was willing to back it. And the thesis is? Investing in the seed stage, companies across energy, logistics, and life sciences, areas where we've built companies as operators, and the intersection of new technology and legacy industries. And by focusing in an area that's overlooked by Coastal VC, we're able to avoid burst bubbles like what you've seen in some of the areas that have, I think, been, um, frankly, overdeveloped and overinvested in and frothy valuations abound. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about the entrepreneurial ecosystem. You see a lot of entrepreneurs that are coming from industry, especially in, in, in the mid-continent. We see a lot of entrepreneurs that come from industry that saw a problem at their previous job and were pulling their hair out asking themselves why there's a better way to do it. Why isn't it happening? Well, corporate R&D has been on the decline for many, many years. And now more corporations are looking to startups to basically buy or be a customer of these new technologies to remain competitive. And the requirement for you know, companies to remain competitive is, is more than it's ever been. And it's technology driven and it's the solutions are coming from technology startups. And so you see more and more people that are, especially kind of with the shakeup of, of COVID and people now really reevaluating how they want to spend their work life. You now see a record number of people quitting their jobs and starting their own company. And more and more of that is, is in the mid-continent, in the middle of the country, in these legacy industries, because of what we discussed earlier, where now you see new technologies that can actually be applied yeah. to these very intransigent, heavy industries and legacy industries. Mm. And what are some of the biggest challenges that your entrepreneurs are working on that you're excited by? Some of the themes that we're backing are AI in heavy industry. So think of like AI in manufacturing or mm -hmm. refineries or you know working like AI in real assets, areas where it hasn't been possible before. But now with the convergence of what you're seeing with things like chat GPT, or at least that level of, of AI, but now being applied um, in heavy industry is, is an area that we get excited about. The challenges are it's hard to do. It's like technically difficult to do. Yeah. You know, software is one thing because you can test it. You can get real-time feedback. It's relatively less expensive to develop. But if you want to prove that something works in a manufacturing setting, well, you have to get a manufacturer to try it out. And so there's, there's an adoption that can be difficult. And so us having LPs who are CEOs and operators in those areas helps. So in many cases, we'll introduce a company, whether or not we invest in them, to an LP who has an expertise, has a company in this area, and get a quick you know, pilot set up. Yeah. So we can get to that conviction sooner, but also so the founder can get that feedback sooner. Oklahoma City and the mid-continent, where are we in terms of that adoption? Is this the capital intensive time where you need to force adoption before it gets to an inflection mm -hmm. point? Where are we right now? I would say we are just now starting to see corporations in this part of the country really earnestly looking at these kinds of you know, startup technology companies as a source for corporate innovation. It's much more common to see like corporate VC mm -hmm. in more developed markets. You're just now starting to see it here. And I think that'll be an explosive point of growth once it becomes more commonplace. And when that happens, the, the scale of that is massive, right? Because most yeah. of the technologies are here are B2B. So we're not really driven by kind of consumer behavior. We're driven more by corporate behavior. And um, so that's a massive inflection point that we're, that we're really just now seeing. So talking about corporate behavior, markets are interesting. Recently with the fallout of regional banks, inflation, interest rates, there's so many challenges right now. How is the corporate behavior today? 
you know, we've seen with the banks, obviously, like multiple collapses of banks that were, were believed to be unfathomable before. And now you're seeing banks step up um, in different areas that you know want to get into venture capital, want to get into startups that are seeing early stage companies are not influenced as much by interest rates. And so we're seeing more attention into private markets and to earlier stage companies that are not reliant on debt, so therefore less affected by interest rates. It's, it's difficult to raise yeah. anywhere. It's difficult to raise capital for any startup. And that's the more true now that it's been in years because of this. I had Martina Walkoff on who leads WXR Fund, right? And it's about bringing extended reality, working with corporates, things like that. And AI, yes, it's a hype right now, but arguably in many ways, going digital may not be the core mm -hmm. priority today. Are you seeing resistance with corporates at all? Or has it shifted in that because of markets, mm -hmm. we need to innovate, we need to disrupt? It depends on the industry, but certainly depends on the size of the company, frankly. The largest companies are maybe talking more about it, but it's still really hard to turn that ship. The inertia is difficult. So it's actually more the kind of mid-sized companies where we see both of talking about it and doing something about it, both working with early stage companies and adopting technology, going digital, changing their business. So it's kind of these mid-sized companies that mm. aren't necessarily you know, making headlines that we see being very fast adopters. And so when we work with our companies, we say, spend a lot of time there. Of course, you got to chase the big ones. You got to chase the you know big companies. Names, to, yeah. uh, but really spend a lot on mid-sized businesses, which abound in the middle of the country. Especially here. And mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of that, a lot flying under the radar, mm -hmm. making millions of revenue that are hungry to think about what next because they're entrepreneurs themselves. Yeah. It and they're scrappy and yeah. they want to be one of the big ones. And so they see this is how they do it. Yeah, which is mm -hmm. exciting. I actually spoke with one of your LPs, Everett, who owns the mm -hmm. Thunder NBA um, team. And long before content was a thing, mm -hmm. he had his big exit and he actually invested into Thunder because he mm -hmm. saw the opportunity of TV rights and media and content and mm -hmm. in some way I see that actually it's unexpected for mm -hmm. me mm -hmm. to see you know unassuming investors who are already thinking way ahead from mm -hmm. old school businesses in many ways and you're right actually it's a good example in you know in Everett's case you know built adoption communications and as now investing in with his personal money but also with corporate money in the future so adoption adoption fiber now but also as you mentioned with you know the thunder now a, a big investor with with us and both of our funds so you're seeing more of that persona yeah. or somebody who um, for decades has built an amazing company in an industry that's been around for a long time, but now they're fully committed both personally and corporately um, in what's next. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so what's next is you're raising fund two and you mm -hmm. chose a very interesting structure, which is why we can talk about it today, a mm -hmm. 506C. C. That's right. Yeah. So tell me about this decision. You know, how's it going? Yeah. So with, with, <laughs> with a, with a 506C, it's an election you can make in, in your SEC paperwork that basically allows you to talk about your raise. Basically, talking about what we're doing, building in public, as, as they say. It's very important where we are because we're building a venture capital firm in a part of the country that is not as familiar with that as an asset class. Mm. So we thought it was really important to be able to kind of tell this story as we do it instead of having to do it kind of in secret. We now are at 100 million AUM total. And we've done that before even turning three. So we're very proud of that. It's a reflection both of the market's beliefs that what we're doing is a good idea, but also it's a reflection of our growing asset value from success of our underlying companies. We want more like us. We want other firms um, in the region to, to start and to grow because we need that for a vibrant ecosystem. We need lots of capital that has different focus. And uh, so that way we attract more founders, more company builders, and it becomes a virtuous cycle. Yeah. 
So I was on the GP panel with a couple of your partners, mm -hmm. and interestingly, one is called Flyover Capital, mm -hmm. uh, with the thesis that you know these flyover states should be looked at in the way that you're talking about. How have you found um, the investor community? What are the numbers? Do you have a sense of the mid-continent? How much capital are we talking about? Yeah, I would say we've done some numbers that are more local, specific to Oklahoma, and I can speak to that. Then I can yeah, broaden it a bit beyond that too. Three and a half years ago, before COVID, basically, there was about fifty million dollars in circulation on an annual basis in venture capital uh, at most. Wow. There's now about $500 million in circulation in venture capital. In three years? Yeah. So there's been a 10x growth. Wow. We're a big part of that. Attento Capital is a big part of that. Many others that that are focused you know, in the region or beyond, and everybody has kind of a, a different approach. But the point is, that's the amount of capital just here. If I were to broaden that a bit to the mid-continent market, so think of North Texas, Kansas City, where flyover capital is, they're a, a younger firm as well. They just started not you know, just a, a few years ago. And, you know, similar story, similar trajectory, the amount of capital in this broader mid-continent market has grown by at least fivefold, as mm. even if we just look at this kind of six state area. And again, that's just in three years. Yeah. And so you have a lot of firms that are now on fund two, groups like Flyover and others that have gone from kind of a, a starter fund size, like somewhere in the 10, 20, 30 million dollar range that are now in the 50 to 100 million dollar range in fund two. And I think so not only are you seeing fund sizes double and triple, but you're seeing the number of funds go from in some areas zero to five or six or you know yeah. more. And in the three years, have there been any break out stories. Yeah, so actually one of our one of our companies, Recuro Health, founded by uh, Teladoc founder Mike Gorton. That company just started two a little over two years ago, and um, they just closed a Series B. They just announced it, so we can talk about it. Massive, massive growth, but also round size. And a couple of local firms, us and uh, OLSF Ventures out of Tulsa, uh, were the co-lead investors in that initial round. And uh, Arch Venture Partners, one of the big health tech investors um, in the country, you know, they followed on and then and then doubled down in their subsequent in, in the Series B. So that's been a, a massive growth, and I expect to see that as a unicorn very soon. And that is uh, the business model is essentially telehealth within mm -hmm. Oklahoma City. What's the reach of that? Let's talk a little bit about yes. you know, what numbers. The we're founders in Dallas, so their their team is actually distributed team um, all throughout the broader Midwest as well. But you're right, it's telehealth. It's really creating a digital medical home. So all the things that technology now enables you to do in terms of at-home testing, you know, devices, telehealth, putting that under one platform and creating better health outcomes, but also more preventative. Customers range from just individual users, but also they're actually selling a lot to corporations. We talked earlier about that. So they're selling a lot to uh, midsize and, and larger, and including Fortune 500 companies as well, because they're seeing that they have healthier, happier employees that have better outcomes, better insurance uh, rates as well. And uh, employers love that. And so, um, so you're really seeing that model of kind of B2B to C, but also now with how we behave differently and how we interact with technology differently post-COVID, um, how we look at work differently. And I think all those themes are really underpinning the success of Recuro. We also like the fact that it creates more access to healthcare in populations that have a difficult time accessing it. And so a lot of places in Oklahoma and, and other like rural parts of America, you see and there's a shortage uh, of, of medical professionals. So technologies like this is bridging that gap. And so you're now deep in fundraising for mm -hmm. Fund 2. What have you learned from Fund 1 that you're taking into Fund 2? We've really sharpened our model around what works and like where we have expertise and where we're able to add value. And that's, you know, refining within energy, logistics, and life sciences. 
so I think that you'll see more conviction and more focus of the fund around those themes, but also we're benefiting from our success and helping build a vibrant ecosystem. So yesterday's Mid-Continent Venture Capital Summit is a great example of that. Um, we have many partners, including The Verge, OKC, which is Oklahoma City's first um, entrepreneurship hub, you know, started last year and they're actually located with us in this building. A lot of different amazing partners that have now flocked to this market in, in Oklahoma City. That's now created this flywheel effect. You now attract early stage founders that now have programming to get to the next stage where they become prime time for our investment mm. and then they get great support as they grow their company and so i think we're getting better at that but also just benefiting from now those things are here and so we've talked a lot about the good stuff what were your mistakes we really try to stay disciplined on the kind of deal terms that we do for example it's no secret i mean we if it's a safe or a convertible note we have to have a cap and when we haven't done that or when there's been a very high cap that basically is no cap that hasn't worked out well. And so I think that if I were to broaden the lesson, I would say if you have conviction around what terms make sense for you, what deal terms make sense for you, then stick with that. It's really important to be able to do that because if you start going outside, then it becomes too much to handle or you end up um, really dooming the next round because then it's hard to raise on a high cap or it's hard to raise when there's when it's uncapped for the next round. And in our business, and it's true for as investors, it's true as, as founders, you really have to be thinking about the next round. I mean, it sounds silly to be raising money now, but to really like structure the now round for the future round, but you have to think that way. And the times where founders haven't, it's not worked out well. And other mm -hmm. examples would be if you're at a very early stage as a founder working with let's just say unsophisticated angels, and it's okay to be unsophisticated angel, I was one at one point, but who aren't using commercial terms, then that can also doom the subsequent round. Mm. Um, or it at least makes so much work for the next institutional investor to have to clean up that they may walk away. And so we spend a lot of time um, with ecosystem building and working with the community to try just to share education and, and yeah. have people learn from each other. So that way you do we can avoid some of those mistakes. So I heard you evaluate something like 800 deals. Is that right, a, a year? Yeah, so we're at that clip now. Our goal, um, we were hoping to look at maybe 500 a year, but we've really created this flywheel. It's now 800 a year, yeah. When you say no, and obviously you say no a lot, mm -hmm. what are the key reasons you say no? Yeah, um, in some cases, it's just a really quick, it's like just not a fit. It's the wrong stage. It's the wrong sector. It's outside of our geographic focus. We try to make that very clear. It's on the website and we publish about it a lot. In other cases where you get into diligence, we really will see a mismatch on you know, product market fit. Like it may be a great team. It may be a good idea that's either like ahead of its time or it's in an area that's too crowded, or there's just lack of clarity on the strategy on how they're going to get adoption. Because we invest a lot at that nexus of good idea, good team, cool technology, big market, mm -hmm. but do what's the right kind of customer? What's the right, right kind of strategy? And we see a lot of a gap there. Like that's the, the hardest part. Yeah. And that's the part that we invest in. And we try to work with founders because of that. Does portfolio construction come into it at all? How are you thinking mm. about your portfolio construction? That's a big part of it too. So seed stage is definitely our priority. We do some kind of early series A, sometimes the nomenclature is meaningless, but we do some what others would call like the kind of early or, or smaller series A. We do some pre-seed, but only if there is um, a pilot, either that we enable or that's ongoing, a referenceable customer. So those are important pieces of kind of our investing window. And on the allocation and portfolio construction, uh, we try to have a good blend of that. So where it's, you know, 
more than half seed, but then kind of have the shoulders of some exposure to pre-seed. We do like to get in a lot of pre-seed and, and true seed because that's option value. And so, you know, we, we can really um, find a company at, at the earliest point before they're known broadly yeah. and be meaningful to help get them customer access and then triple down at a later stage. So that's how we look at construction in terms of stage. In terms of sector, we like to see close to a third across energy, logistics, and life sciences. Right. And more and more, we see energy and logistics merging, where you see like an efficiency yeah, that that, makes sense. that's applied to logistics or supply chain that saves costs on energy. So it's like, we don't know what, what bucket to put that in. Sometimes we just call it industry 4.0, but that's kind of how we see allocation across those thematic areas. And you said you triple down sometimes. How do you think about reserves? Yeah, we have um, more than half the fund in reserves. Mm. And I've seen, I've read lots and seen lots of opinions on uh, reserves. I saw a study that looked at reserves and their conclusion kind of made me laugh a little bit. It said that follow on is not worth it. You shouldn't do it. The only reason you should ever consider it is, is if that company were had a really much better chance of working out than other investments. And I'm like, that's that's what the reserve is for, is the company that's doing well and that's hitting targets and yes. that you want to triple down on. Some people think of reserve as like automatic follow-on. It's like, no, no, it, we don't follow on to every company, even companies that have successful up rounds. It really has to be the best use of those next incremental dollars. Mm and you know high conviction around where the company is and the growth and we try to be very clear uh, about that and um sometimes we hit it sometimes we don't so i asked you this question about founders you saying mm -hmm. no to founders when lps you've pitched have said no to you what is the primary reason it would just be how long we've been around or how long we haven't been around so we're, we're, we're just record. turning three track record yeah and some people love emerging managers as a concept because there's a lot of information out there that shows that emerging managers just as a general class of like fund one through three outperform most of the funds that have um that are top decile for their vintage are emerging managers of fund one through three that's because that firm, that fund, is focusing on a new thing, and venture capital is all about new, new things, things, right? And so finding, like, like our story, it's like, hey, we, we see this trend happening in this part of the country. We can do it better than anybody else. We're going to do it. So that's the underpinning of a good emerging manager. But obviously, if you don't have a track record, if you don't have years of exits that you can point to, then like, I get it. I can't, I can't change that. Yet, you know, we'll talk again at Fund 4 and the minimum will be higher, but, uh, you know, that's, it just takes time to get there. What has been the hardest thing for you in this chapter of your journey? I would say knowing how and when to spend time, and especially in an emerging market where there's so much ecosystem building that can be done, knowing where to spend your time. Like, it could be really, really fruitful for us to spend time developing some aspect of the ecosystem, but maybe that's not a good use of time. Um, there's always more that you can do. I feel like if I were doing this in a very established market, then all the things would have already been done and I would just be an investor. Mm. But instead, we really feel there's a competitive advantage to spending time there, but um, working yourself you know, to the bone is, uh, is certainly something that um, I can and have been, been doing and it is not the best way to maybe approach work-life balance. Um, and so I think that would be the, you know, my personally my biggest yeah. professional challenge. So on a journey to become the next best investor, Nathaniel mm -hmm. Harding, it's been a great conversation. Billion dollar questions is where we're at right now. Quick questions, first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Your guilty pleasure. Cigars. Three values you want your kids to espouse. Honesty, empathy, satisfaction. When have you taken a stand on something and why? 
I sometimes kind of get mad at myself for being vanilla. A people pleaser, want to have just mainstream views. So like my inability. Where does that come from? I like being liked. I grew up like a Southern Baptist, like Oklahoma family. Very kind of old school traditional mainstream now that's not a mainstream family now like a and the average family in america is like anything yeah, but average you know that's right but like kind of the historical you know believe it to beaver like view of what a family or what a person should be is what i grew up with it's hard for me to kind of bust mm. out of that or you know just have more empathy and think outside of that and think like why is that person the way they are which is very different than the way i was told to be I guess being like the youngest, I'm kind of like the missing link of the whole family. Like I'm You're the, the glue. I'm the glue. Mm. And so wanting everybody to get along, all those things are just ingrained in me. Wow. And so it's hard for me to have a hot take. Yeah. It's hard for me to take an unpopular stance. Hmm. And uh, I'm not like proud of that. What's your non-negotiable in working with a founder? No jerks. No jerks. Love it. An opinion you have that many don't actually agree with. Unpopular opinion. Investing in the middle of the country is a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Well, what's your biggest insecurity? That I, that I don't stack up, that I, I came from a non-traditional background mm. as an investor and that I don't have the right resume. All right. And final question. What will your legacy be, Nathaniel Harding? Making venture capital a real asset class in Oklahoma. Love it. And with that, thank you for your time, your mm -hmm. insights and sharing about the vision and the dream of uh, Oklahoma City and the Mid-Continent. Thank you. It was a wonderful time. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings, and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves. Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jiu-jitsu-loving entrepreneur and co-founder of Rocketbook. He talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a Shark Tank flop, but ended with a $50 million exit. You know that's our jam. Listen to it, Talking Too Loud, wherever you get your podcasts.